But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where the past comes alive. Today, we embark on a journey back to the age of discovery, a time of bold explorers and world-changing encounters. In this episode, we delve into the saga of Hernan Cortes, a figure whose ambition and action shaped the course of history. From the bustling streets of Spain to the majestic Aztec Empire, we explore how Cortes' conquest for glory led to the fall of a civilization and the forging of a new world. Join us as we unravel the complexities of this pivotal moment in history, where cultures clashed, empires fell, and the modern world began to take shape. This is the History in Motion podcast, and today we witness the rise and fall of empires through the eyes of Hernan Cortes. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the History in Motion podcast, where today we'll be continuing our story from last week about the Spanish conquest of Mexico and Central America, where last week we talked about Montezuma II and the fall of the Aztec Empire. But there was a man who led the conquistadors to victory and really is seen as a very controversial figure in Central America and specifically Mexico nowadays. And that's Hernan Cortes, who is the conquistador leader, not really a military leader, just kind of a leader of of a bunch of dudes who kind of rolled into into Mexico and, and did some pretty, pretty nasty things. So I think, Richie, we we prefaced this last week, and this story is just absolutely fascinating from just so many different levels on how this is almost like an alien invasion to the Aztecs where two completely separate worlds are clashing. And then you get into who Cortez is as a person and what his motivations are. You know, it's just another layer to this really in-depth, really fascinating story. Yeah, I think I always go back to that whole motif of clash of civilizations, right? The meeting of two worlds. And I think that is what draws me to this particular chapter of history so much because it's just it's just so fascinating and I think like historically speaking, we you know, we kind of take it for granted because we're so interconnected. It's very easy for us to understand or at least see and view different cultures whereas, you know, in the late 1480s, early 1500s, this was the first time that either party had seen each other for the first time. Like they didn't even know they existed, right? And I think that to me is one of the coolest probably takeaways from doing episodes like this. I think, yeah, you hit it the nail on the head there. And the other thing that I come to is, you know, we learned a lot about Canadian and American history growing Mm -hmm. up and you learn a lot about clashes with the indigenous Native Americans. But this is just so different because you have a lot of nomadic tribes in North America. It's not Mm -hmm. really big, large cities. Um, There's no empires. There's confederacies and things like that. But when we look at the Aztecs, right, this is massive main city, capital city with a huge empire and really is very similar to what a European or uh, Asian or middle um, from the Middle East, like one of those empires would look like. Yep. But, you know, just much more primitive and from a technological standpoint. And so to see those two come together, it is it is very different because I don't really think anything else like that ever happens to the point where, like you were saying, that they have no contact. We see lots of Europeans moving into Africa and into parts in China and different places like that, but they all kind of knew 
knew that these people existed. This wasn't a massive shock, but this is just like a bunch of guys show up on your doorstep and a decade later, your entire empire is destroyed and your, you know, a huge amount of your population is dead. I don't think there's anything else that even comes close to that in history. And like we said, it's, it really is like this alien invasion that, you know, can't be stopped. Yeah. hundred percent. I think like, again, just to double down on that, like just for a second, imagine how the worldview of these two party changes with first contact, right? Like their world now has become infinitely larger to a degree they probably can't even comprehend. That's why I think like bookending these conversations with Montezuma and like Hernan Cortez is so fascinating because I'm not going to say they're in direct opposition to each other. I, I probably could say that, but like historically, culturally, socially, what they start to represent when we look at them like in with a contrast like comparison, you know, I think it really makes for an interesting discussion. For sure. It's yeah, the clashing of worlds, the clashing of ideologies, but then two men who are very, very different. But yeah. when you kind of break them down, they're ambitious, they're powerful, they have, exactly. they want the best for themselves and for the people around them. They are leaders and that's what we do here, right? So yeah. to kick off this story, I think it's important that we just take a, a quick second to set the scene a little bit on on Spain and the colonization efforts that are going on in the Caribbean and then moving into Central America. So we've done a few episodes on, on the Spanish and their exploration. So we've talked about Queen Isabella. And we've also talked about Christopher Columbus. So just to give a quick recap, Queen Isabella marries Ferdinand of Aragon, which unites the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon, which eventually becomes what we know today as Spain. During that time, the Castilian crown is starting to consolidate their power within the Iberian Peninsula, kicking out the Moors out of Spain and really making all of Spain a very Catholic state. And part of this involves sending Columbus on four expeditions to the New World, where he lands in the Caribbean. And it's really interesting how quickly things change. Queen Isabella is very explicit that when Columbus and the other explorers go to the Caribbean and meet these indigenous people that they're not to be enslaved, they're to be treated with respect, they're to be baptized as Christians, and they are to be taken into the Spanish Empire as subjects of Queen Isabella. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> However, Columbus, being the first one to go over there, already breaks that rule and brings back some Tainos, which are a native group from Hispaniola, which today is the Dominican Republic and Haiti brings them back and they're in just terrible health and terrible order. And Queen Isabella gets very, very upset about this. And you'd think, okay, maybe this is going to turn things around. Fast forward if about 15, 20 years, Queen Isabella has passed away, new leadership in Spain, and the Spanish are in full colonization mode of Hispaniola. And some historians say Hispaniola has been turned into basically hell on earth. The indigenous population is enslaved. They're working in the mines because they found gold which is the, the classic story with Spanish conquistadors. They're always looking for gold. They almost have this lust for gold that they can't yep. seem to shake. And they're forcing the indigenous population to work in mines and do all this manual labor of, of some sort. There's revolts, There's then they're put down really aggressively. And it's just a horrible, horrible place. And then on top of that, there is a massive smallpox epidemic, which is burning through the Taino population. So the Spanish are looking at this going, well, that's not good because that's our workforce and they're all dying off from from this disease. And this is when we start to see the first African slaves being brought into Hispaniola. So that's why when we see a lot of African influences in the Caribbean and other places in Central America, all kind of starts from the indigenous populations getting killed are dying off, killed and dying off due to mm -hmm. disease, and then African slaves coming in to kind of fill in that gap. So we're really at a point here where, you know, the Spanish are coming in from this very, you'd call it almost entrepreneurial standpoint where it's, let's bring in, let's develop these businesses and let's develop these enterprises, but at 
you know, not as a way we would think a typical entrepreneur works. This is a very just ruthless type of concept here. So it's not a great place to be. And the Spanish are, you know, continuing to push this this world. And, and this is a world that Cortez comes into. He sees a lot of these men going over to the new world, looking for riches and really not caring how, how they do it. And so on top of this too, Catholicism is massive. This is a, a really big point of the Spanish. And it's really the number one priority of the Spanish crown is to spread Catholicism to the world and, you know, use it as a way of controlling um, the people that are under them. But they also genuinely believe that being Catholic, being Christian is the most important thing for everybody in the world. So we have this weird kind of juxtaposition of, yes, we want to be good Catholics, we want to be good Christians, but yet we're going to enslave populations because we need gold and at all costs. So that's kind of where we're at. And it's a it's a tricky point for a lot of people involved and it only gets worse, unfortunately. I think it's a really good overview. I think there's just a couple of things we'd probably want to keep in mind and, and a couple of things that stood out to me um, that I think also came through in my research. One was like the Taino population. You know, you mentioned smallpox uh, and the epidemic that would ultimately run through and that kind of being one of the trigger points of bringing in African slaves uh, into the new world. But this like transmission of disease, right? It is, it plays a huge role in this uh, colonization effort in, in the new world. And, and we'll see the role it played in the conquest of uh, of the Aztec Empire when it came to um, Hernan Cortez and, you know, uh, the forces with him. But it's funny because we can't undermine the role that germs played in the colonization of the New World. And there's a great book called uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by a historian that looks at this kind of trinity as being key proponents in how Europe was able to actually colonize and conquer the New World so effectively. And disease is a huge part of it. Absolutely. It's this hidden weapon that the Spanish didn't even exactly. know they had. And yep. it's just gets so out of control so quickly yep. that there's really no defense for it. And even if the Spanish wanted to come in and be nice guys about everything, there's very little they can do about this because smallpox is showing up one way or another, whether it's through trading vessels or a full-on invasion like like we ended up seeing. So there's not really much that can be done. And it's, it's a really unfortunate thing that happens because it just kind of burns through real quick. And there's a lot of Catholic friars and monks that go over and they're looking at this and saying, my goodness, like what is happening? What are we doing? We need to respect these people. We need to exactly. treat them. We need to do these yeah. better things. But this lust for gold, right? This lust for power is so ingrained in what the Spanish do. And I, I did a little bit of research too on why gold, right? We always talk about gold. as <laughs> a great question. <laughs> why is it so great? And it was actually a really simple answer. And the reason is, is it's divisible very easily. You can get a chest of gold coins and you can hand it to your men and they can do what they need with it. It doesn't mm -hmm. rot. It doesn't decay. It's going to last forever. And it's portable. You can throw a chest on a ship and take it away where you can't do that with land. You can't do that necessarily with a big palace. It's And it, again, obviously it's shiny and it looks nice and people sure. like it for yeah. that. But that is the piece, right? If you can if you can find gold, you can easily bring it back to Spain and, and live this luxurious life and set your family up for, for the future. And that's what a lot of these conquistadors are thinking. And there's a great historian who, who says, um, he calls them armed entrepreneurs who basically <laughs> say like, you know, think of some of the great entrepreneurs of our day, but give them guns and weapons and, and let and just see what would happen because they have this this burning ambition to to make a lot of money Fair. to be successful but they got a bunch of weapons and guns so they're going to be really really ruthless in you know achieving their their end goals and i'll think and i think we are going to see the like the ruthlessness and the savagery that really does start to materialize during the conquest yeah it doesn't uh it doesn't end unfortunately and um just one 
kind of quote here that I have about uh, the conquistadors that I think we can just use as a segue into um, Cortez's life is the conquistadors, if you were to describe them in three words, it was gold, God, and glory. So <laughs> that's what they're that's what they're there for. Nothing more, nothing less. And we'll see how how that plays a huge part in in this story. I, great transition point. I think something that I walked away with, and we can discuss it at the end, Paul, when we kind of debrief, I think for Cortez doing research, you know, is he a product of his times? The age of exploration, Columbus, you know, everything that's going on, who is he? How did he get there? And I think that's something I kept coming back to. And I kept doing uh, that comparison with, with Columbus a bit, because I think it's a very apt one. Um, but we'll see. And I think there's, there's so much to his life that really does inform you know what he would ultimately turn into or you know the actions that we would see later in his life uh, in the new world uh but we can kick off and just try to get a sense of you know his his adolescence i think you know one of the things i've walked away with during these episodes is that you can start to glean a lot of personality and character traits <laughs> yep, in definitely in a young person that um seem to really impact how they operate as adults which uh you know we're not a psychology podcast but I think that's definitely something uh, we've seen quite consistently throughout our episodes. We're amateur historians. I think we can be amateur psychologists every now and then. I'll, I'll give us that. Yeah, why not? So for Cortez, he's kind of born into a family that is of lesser nobility. That's not saying, you know, that they're not well off, but, you know, relatively speaking, they, you know, weren't the wealthiest and they weren't the poorest. So somewhere in the middle, but they did have enough resources to, you know, provide him with a decent upbringing. And and this kind of gave him a taste of nobility without the actual privileges of wealth. Uh, when he was young, he was sent to study at the University of Salamanca, which was of someone of his like upper middle class lifestyle was somewhat normal and essentially was preparing him for a career in law. Um, however, his stay at university was very short lived. Um, historians suggest that he wasn't very interested in the confines of a classroom and was much more interested in adventure and exploration. And, you know, his ambitions, you know, really did start manifesting quite early. To your point, Paul, that you kind of raised before we jumped into it was that, you know, he grew up during the Reconquista. So uh, Spanish Christians are fighting to reclaim their land from the Moors. This period is also marked by very strong military ethos and a focus on territorial expansion. You know, if we look at the late 15th and early 16th centuries, these are, this is what I would call like the age of exploration, the age of discovery, whatever you want to call it. You know, you have Columbus's voyages to the New World beginning in 1492, which really, you know, if you're someone like Cortez, who's ambitious, interested in discovery, has ambition to be wealthy, you know, he grew up in a world of new possibilities and like dreams of fortune which were probably, you know, all around him, which, you know, what young man wouldn't that entice if you've already got it in you a little bit? Exactly. And he's also growing up in a very violent world too. The Reconquista yep. was not a, a nice time for anybody, right? There's a lot of war and a lot of bloodshed. And like you said too, the going for glory and fame and all of these sort of things, like before Spain being very fractured into multiple kingdoms and yep. nobody really knowing what tomorrow is going to look like. You finally get a little bit of this unification. You see this great queen come forward and everybody kind of seeing what one individual person can do to a country. That's got to be inspiring to a lot of these people. And now Spain being so powerful, having the money to say, you know, what, yeah, we can, we don't need to worry so much about domestic affairs. We can send boats across the ocean and, and see what they find. And if they don't come back with anything, not great, but 
it's not the end of the world for us. Exactly. So yep. yeah, it's a, it's a perfect scenario for someone who's got any sort of ambition, but also has to have that also has to be in a point in their life where they're not comfortable either, because if you have a cozy life in Spain, you're not going you to give it up. Yeah. yeah. You're not, you're not crossing the Atlantic and hacking through jungles trying to no. find some gold, right? No, no, he's not being welcomed by roads, infrastructure, anything that anything like what Spain has to offer if you're living a comfortable life there. But really, again, like to your point, it is really a great environment for someone to have these dreams and possibilities of like wealth, fame, social advancement through exploration. So as well as conquest. So you can see how it's a very powerful motivator. And before we kind of pivot to his career or like his his activities in the new world. So his career wasn't just on exploration, but he actually served as a notary and a clerk in Spain. So and, you know, after the fact, he was able to turn towards adventure and he joined an expedition to the new world, uh, departing for Hispaniola uh, in 1504. And essentially, this is the turning point, starting a journey into becoming a conquistador, which would essentially, you know, reshape shape North America as we know it. So if we pivot to his actual arrival in Hispaniola. So when he arrives, he's entered into a world of like colonial opportunity and exploitation. He's a, he's a notary there and later a landowner. He gains firsthand experience in colonial administration, the Ecomnienda system where Spanish settlers were granted land along with the right to use indigenous labor. So this kind of gave him some really early, but I would imagine very useful experience into the complexities of managing and running businesses or farms or landscape in, in the new world and how you could essentially leverage it for his own personal gain. And I even think with him though, it's he's getting a little bit of that experience, but he's not a governor. He's not a uh-huh. general. He's a notary, right? Like it's an important yep. job, but it's not it's not what you would think of, oh, this guy's gonna go conquer the Aztecs no. and run Mexico for as many years as he can, right? He's a little bit of a just kind of a guy who's doing some things. He's working the administration, but he's not someone you would yeah, you would tap on the shoulder and say, Oh, you should be the one to go do you know, you should be the one to go figure out where what's going on in um the center of Mexico, which is very odd why he ends up becoming that person, but you know. It's just, it doesn't really, you'd be hard pressed to figure out why he would get picked versus maybe somebody oh, else. 100%. Like from relative obscurity to being a stalwart in history books, right? Like it's it's quite the leap that he makes. And I think it kind of starts with the conquest of Cuba in 1511. So Cortez joins Diego Vasquez in the conquest of Cuba. He kind of witnesses the brutality, but the rewards of conquest. His participation in that campaign, you know, again, provides some experience. It teaches him about military tactics, governance, the treatment of indigenous people. Um, but his performance also earned him some influence, including the mayorship of Santiago de Cuba. So you can see, again, you know, his willingness to learn, his willingness to, you know, take risks, get in the front is paying off. You know, he goes from notary to the to essentially, you know, uh, a, a public administrator at a, at a higher level of government. And then in 1518, he's appointed to lead an expedition to Mexico. So again, another opportunity which he rises to the occasion for. He showcases his skills in organization to inspire loyalty in others. You know, you so you got, start seeing some of these budding leadership qualities come out. He gathers uh, ships, men, supplies. He's able to logistically plan the expedition. However, at this point, the relationship between Cortez and Vasquez kind of sours. It actually leads to Vasquez uh, revoking his command, and Cortez ultimately decides to defy him and proceed anyway as a very bold and rebellious mood. And then 
you know, to me, essentially, what, you know, seek forgiveness later, right? Like, just do what you got to do at this point. And it seems like nothing was going to stop him from actually executing against this expedition. I think it's really important when you say this, because this is, you know, we have to put put ourselves in Montezuma's shoes, right? Cortez shows up, he's representing the Spanish crown and saying that I represent Spain, but he's a criminal. Quite frankly, he's defied orders. He his his boss has said You're, you do not take those ships and you do not go because they belong to the Spanish crown. And he said, screw it, I'm going anyways. And Velasquez tries to stop him, but is unable to. So Cortez is sailing off as essentially a rogue commander going yep. to claim things for Spain. And so it's important to understand that because if you start to think of what are his motivations, right? He can't just go on a little scouting party, discover some things and come back because Velasquez will probably throw him in prison or, or even worse. He really needs to make sure that he finds something special so he can you know, write back to the king of Spain saying, look what I found. And then whatever pull Velasquez has is not going to be able to supersede what Whatever he's done. Exactly. So it's a really, really interesting piece. And and I wonder too, Richie, like, do you think Velasquez maybe picked him because he thought, hey, maybe Mexico, you know, he'll he'll do some stuff, but he eventually will fail and then I I will be able to take over. Or I tr- I struggle to f- understand why he would pick Cortez because clearly something happens where he realizes maybe Cortez is more ambitious than I thought, or he's more I think that's yeah. It. You think I that's, think that's it? it? I think yeah. that's it. I think he saw something in him and then realized, again, we are totally, this is total conjecture at this point. <laughs> uh, but I, I am of the opinion that I think he saw his ambition, which he initially thought could be, you know, kind of reined in a little bit. And then ultimately probably saw that there was no reining in his ambition or motivation to to do things to get power and influence. And I think Velasquez probably recognized that and saw that as a huge risk, not only for what they were trying to do, but, you know, to his own stake and where he was positioned. Yeah, because I'm sure Velasquez has his own ambitions as well, right? And if 100%. he sends off this really ambitious guy who's going to who says finds this city of gold, which they keep hearing about all the time. Who's to say that Cortez doesn't do all of this? And then the king of Spain is so happy that, you know, he gives him Cuba and, you know, command of the entire America. Like, you just don't know, right? Don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and I think this is a great point, right, that you just made about he's there in defiance. So when he gets to Mexico, he marches toward Tenochtitlan and he has the first contact with the Aztecs. You know, he's able to really, <laughs> strangely enough, like be very diplomatic. You know, he is putting up this front that he is actually this very powerful figure who is actually trying to manage these interactions while trying to understand the strength and structure of the Aztec Empire. You know, trying to, with surgeon-like precision, I imagine, to figure out what the fault points are, what the weak points are, what can he could take advantage of? How is this going to align with his ambitions? And I think, again, he is very exploitive. I think you're seeing that in his journey thus far. Like he's willing to take advantage of opportunities and not just take advantage, He's willing to totally exploit any opportunity given to him, regardless of, you know, the the impact it's going to have on anyone else. Yeah, he's definitely thinking about what comes next, right? How, who's going to be the person that's going to come and take this from me? Or how do I make sure I'm the first one to do this? And there's a great story about Cortez and the conquistadors here. So there's this really interesting thing with the Spanish. And we mentioned it a bit last time about how legalistic they are. And everything that mm-hmm. they do is to protect themselves from getting sued down the line. So there's an interesting story about Cortez where there's a there's like a kind of a folktale that he burned his ships when he got to the new world to say well you know we're, there's no going back what he actually did was he beached his ships so they he don't want to leave them in the sea 
Um, and they started to take some wood from that and they created a little town called Vera Cruz, which yep. translates to the new cross. And the first thing they did was they said, you know what? We need a mayor of this town. And Cortez goes, you know what, guys? I'm no longer in command. I relinquish my command, but we're, we're all going to vote on who should be the mayor of this town. And, and Richie, I'll, I'll, I'll give you five bucks if you can, uh, if you can guess <laughs> who unanimously is, is picked as uh the mayor of this uh, this town it just goes to show you right like right. He, he's he's very adept at being able to he's like a, he's almost like a shrewd politician absolutely in, in a way right like he's, he's a lawyer he's, too very, in a sense right because yeah, he knows yeah, he's a notary yeah. right so in this sense he's saying i'm now the mayor of this town i have a legal claim to this town so velasquez ever tries to come back at me and say you're some rogue he's like well i'm the legally elected mayor of this town that you can't you have no jurisdiction yeah. here. Like it's actually quite brilliant when you think it about is. it. It is, and I think that goes to 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 kind of showcase the, the how much of a tactician he is. Right, he's able to leverage all of his experience and knowledge into kind of just leapfrogging some of these uh, barriers that he was presented with. I think this is a great time to kind of pivot probably into the actual conquest of the of the empire itself. So I think it's safe to say at this point, you know, he's he's not just a conquistador. By the time he reaches the Aztec Empire, you know, he is a shrewd politician. He's a strategist. And he's about to face one of the most powerful empires in the Americas. So this, the conquest itself actually culminates around 1522. Um, it's ruthless. It's tactical. He leverages multiple native uh, indigenous alliances. And the most interesting one that I think we're going to spend a little bit of time on is his relationship with La Malinche or uh, Doña Marina, who is a Nahuatl woman who played a vital role as his interpreter, advisor, intermediary. She was also uh, a mother uh, of his son. <laughs> um, she, she was captured by the Mayans and later given to Cortez. You know, she kind of possessed this linguistic skill, which eventually, you know, or ultimately became invaluable to him. It allowed Cortez to communicate with various indigenous groups, and she almost became her own strategist, right, Paul? I think there is something very intriguing and interesting about the role that she plays in this particular chapter of history. She is probably the most interesting person I think I've ever read about just because we know so little about her motivations, mm -hmm. but we, but she's so, so important to this story because think about it. Cortez shows up and he needs to negotiate with Montezuma. He doesn't speak Nahuatl. Montezuma doesn't speak Spanish. So <laughs> there's this crazy story before they even get um, Malinche into their uh, into their group is the Spanish arrive in the New World and they're basically sending out messages with these different indigenous tribes that they run into saying the Spanish are here. If there's any Spanish people out there, come come to the coast. We're here. And one day this canoe shows up and this Spanish guy is in the canoe and he's basically explains to them that years earlier he was on a ship that was headed for Jamaica. They hit a storm and got essentially shipwrecked in the Yucatan Peninsula and they were captured by the Mayans. Um, there was some also some cannibals in the area. So some of them were, were killed and eaten, which is another thing. That's crazy. But a few of them survive. One actually goes full native and, you know, he gets the tattoos and the piercings kind of like a, a Mayan um, native would at the time, marries a, a Mayan woman, has children. 
But then this other guy whose name is Aguilar comes comes to the coast and he says, I'm here, Cortez, like I'm Spanish. And, you know, he tells this incredible story. But the most important thing is he's been captured by the Mayans and living with the Mayans. So he understands mm-hmm. Mayan now. So this is huge. Like what a stroke of luck for Cortez right now. He has someone who speaks Mayan and someone who speaks Spanish. That's that's perfect. In his mind, he goes, I have a translator. So he eventually finds his way over to where the Aztecs are, which is more in the central area of Mexico. And he starts talking to the Aztecs and Aguilar starts to listen to these people and kind of looks back at Cortez and goes, oh my God, I have no idea what these people are saying because they're speaking <laughs> Nahuatl and they don't understand that. And by this stroke of luck, when, when you like you were saying, Malinche and these other group of women are essentially given slash sold to Cortez as, quite frankly, you know, sexual slaves of some type, you know, housekeepers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Malinche is one of them. And so Malinche, like you were saying, she was born in a Nahuatl speaking community, which we believe was paying tribute to the Aztecs. So she grew up in a world where she does not like the Aztecs. She's probably seen them kill a lot of her family members, distaste for the Aztecs because they're paying tribute to them and all these sort of things. So she's definitely not a fan of them. And then at some point in her life, we we really don't know, you know, even what her name was when she was born. But at some point she was sold into slavery or kidnapped and then into a, a Mayan uh, slave market. And so now she speaks Nahuatl, she speaks Mayan. And so now when she's in Cortez's possession, we now have this triangle of of language where Malinche can 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 translate Nahuatl into Mayan and Aguilar can translate Mayan into Spanish. And now we have this weird triangle that, again, strokes of luck. And we see this in history, right? You got to be lucky, even no matter how smart you are. And so now Cortez has a translator who can speak multiple languages. And then Malinche eventually just being around the Spanish clearly is very clever with languages, is able to pick up Spanish and be his official translator um, when he meets Montezuma and, and the rest of the Aztecs. It's just one of those things, right? Like of history, the randomness that just seems to happen at times. Like if it wasn't for her, would we even be having this conversation now? Or how different could this conversation look? It's always something that strikes me. And, you know, I think there is absolutely no reasonable way shape or form that we can downplay the impact that she had on what would ultimately be the conquest and overthrowing of the aztec empire it's absolutely essential because we mentioned it last week and it's important to say it again is when the conquistadors are fighting against the aztecs we have in our head you know there's a handful of spanish beat a huge aztec army that's a very false statement because Yes, there was a handful of Spanish, but there was also a ton of other indigenous tribes and and groups that were fighting it back against the Aztecs. So for Cortez, if he can't speak any local language, how is he going to build all of these alliances? You know, he's going to point at things and maybe show some trinkets and stuff like that. But how are you going to strategize? How are you going to understand who's friend, who's foe, who's going to stab you in the back? Malinche has to do all of this for him. And the if I hope the listeners have picked up on this because the most interesting thing that we don't really know for sure is what the heck is she telling Cortez? She talks yeah. to some guy who speaks a language, doesn't know. She translates it back. Is she flat out lying? Is she telling the truth? Is she spinning it for her own purposes? Because remember, we assume she really has a distaste for the Aztecs and would love to see them destroyed. So when even when she, he's talking to Montezuma, what what is she doing? We don't know, which I think makes it so fascinating because she could say anything. What does Cortez know? He has no idea. The true power of, of these negotiations are in the hands of 
essentially one obscure woman who ends up becoming one of the most important people in this entire story, if not in world history. It's insane. Yeah. I, I, again, like I don't think there's any way we could undermine the role that she had. And I think to another point you just made around like the strategic alliances. So this is just Cortez and his merry band of armed entrepreneurs, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. Like, more or less. So without these alliances and strategic alliances with other rival groups, this is close to impossible. You know, unless the Spanish come with backups, there is like, there's almost no way that this is going to be done in in a very effortless way. And I think, you know, again, to Cortez's credit, he's able to make alliances with traditional enemies of the Aztecs, a very strategic move, which allows him to bolster his forces with, you know, thousands of indigenous warriors, which are obviously going to be crucial in the siege of Tenochtitlan. And the partnership is obviously marked by mutual benefits to a certain degree, right? And you can see this as kind of this colonial playbook that happens in the new world, which is, you know, they needed manpower, they needed local knowledge, and the enemies of the Aztecs saw an opportunity to overthrow their oppressors. So some mutual benefit there for them. Yeah. And when we look at part of the world, we definitely always run into that place of indigenous versus, you know, conquerors. And I guess as we start to peel the onion back, we see how complex and how much interplay there is and how we talked about last week, how the Aztecs are actually not indigenous to Mexico. They're actually conquerors from the north. And so a lot of these, I guess we could say true indigenous tribes are like, okay, we got one invader. We have a chance to kick them out from these people who are not really sure what their motivations are, but short term thinking, hey, this could be a great idea. And for some, it actually works out quite well. Like that, I think it's the Tach Carlins who are a a group that help against the Aztecs and they live semi independently. They're essentially reporting up into the king of Spain, but they're able to live in their own republic for you know decades and decades yeah, um, until they kind of get amalgamated into the Mexican um, country when it kind of like finally gets formed. So for them, it worked out great. And you know, outside of the smallpox, which I think does, doesn't really doesn't see boundaries, doesn't see borders, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is always yeah. the thing. It's like everything was good except the disease that wiped out you know seventy percent of their population, which is again staggering numbers when you when you put it in terms like that. And I think this is where you know, like this is where the numbers get a little difficult to pin down. Obviously like how how much can we trust these records and you know as we kind of do the lead up into the siege of Tenochtitlan there's um essentially you know they're marching towards Tenochtitlan Cortez and his men they stop at Cholula which is a city that's allied with the Aztecs so here under the pretext of a peaceful visit Cortez essentially orchestrates a brutal massacre Spanish forces and their allies so the indigenous tribes that are there kill thousands of unarmed Cholula nobles and citizens um essentially you know to me this is a clear display of his ruthlessness which, you know, I assume he wanted to serve as a warning for other cities about the consequences of resisting his forces. This is probably one of the more chilling things I think I've read as a part of this research. So, you know, a bit of context. Cholula is an important city-state in central Mexico at this time. They are allied with the Aztec Empire. So there's a betrayal that happens, right? He goes there under this peaceful kind of pretext. Um, Tensions start to escalate between him and the indigenous people, largely, you know, I would assume through cultural misunderstandings, possible instigations of who he's with and who he's allied with. Cortez ultimately receives information, likely from La Malinche, and suggests that the Cholulans, possibly at the behest of the Aztecs, are going to attack the Spanish. And to, Paul, to your point, right, like 
Again, conjecture, but super interesting. Is this the truth? Did she make it up? What was her intentions, right? And I think this is like the the, the mystique and the mystery around this decision. So, you know, Malinche potentially tells Cortez, someone tells Cortez, possibly Malinche, that they're going to attack the Spanish. Whether this threat is real or fabricated, historians can't decide. But this gives Cortez to go ahead to essentially attack. So he ends up gathering as many of the Cholula nobles and leaders under the guise of a peaceful meeting. Once they're assembled the Spaniards and their allies launched a very brutal attack you know they essentially slaughtered priests citizens it was a relentless killing spree defined by Spanish accounts soldiers used swords and crossbows against the defenseless population and the indigenous Laxans kind of seized the opportunity to exact revenge on an old enemy and you know there was just constant bloodshed that that followed yeah who's really pulling the strings here right is this who's the cor- puppet master yeah exactly is it just pure brutality and just evil behavior from Cortez is the Clutch Carlin's saying, like you said, is this the way to get back at an old enemy? And we're able to rile up Cortez in such a way to say, like, if you don't destroy these people, they're going to come and stab you in the back and, you know, in the night. Or is where's Malinche into this? Is, did she make a mistake when translating? Did she use the wrong word because she's still new to these languages? We'll never really know. But we all we do know is the outcome was unbelievably horrible. And, you know, when you hear we, we talked about last week, you know, steel against wooden clubs and obsidian, it's a bloodbath and it's 100%. There's just no way that these forces are going to be able to withstand the the power of these Spanish troops, plus the sheer numbers of their indigenous allies as well. Yeah, and I think you know the city itself is plundered and burned, and the number of dead, you know, estimates range from hundreds to several thousands. But ultimately, what this does is that it's a it's a warning, it's an example to other city states about the consequences of opposing Cortez and his allies. And as someone, as an amateur historian, you know, if I take that analysis a bit deeper, I think it shows his willingness to use extreme violence at any reason that's required to be able to achieve his objectives and instill fear in the surrounding indigenous communities and populations. And it's a different type of warfare that the Aztecs have never seen before. The Aztecs, like we talked about last week, they did things called flower wars, basically, where it's much more of a spectacle where you're trying to capture the enemy to bring him back to sacrifice them. You're not besieging cities and cutting off supply lines like the Spanish are. And so the Aztecs are like, okay, well, we'll have a very spectacle-based war or battle and fight how we've always fought. But now we have no food and we're potentially going to get starved out. You know, you don't, they probably don't have like a European fort might have of just food in reserve just in case they're besieged. Like it's just not a concept that they're used to. 100%. I think these are some lessons, lessons learned or, you know, definitely a part of uh, the strategy that was used to actually seize Tenochtitlan. So like, you know, if we move forward, I won't go too much into the details of the encounter with Montezuma and uh, Cortez because listen to our previous episode. Cortez's first meeting with the emperor is essentially this critical moment. He's received as a guest and he soon takes Montezuma hostage essentially and he gains control over Tenochtitlan and you know it's it's it just goes to show you how ruthless and tactical he was like within you know such little time he's already controlling and using uh Montezuma against his will to make decisions policy decisions religious decisions that are going to better improve his chances of kind of taking over the city so essentially um you know the situation becomes untenable here and we talk about it in detail in the in the last episode, but essentially there's an uprising. 
uprising. And during this uprising, known as the Sad Night or La Noche Triste, Cortes suffers significant losses. However, instead of deterring him, I think this hardened his resolve. And the siege essentially kicks off here. And this is a brutal campaign. And to your point, Paul, I think this is a confluence of like European military strategy to starve them out. You have smallpox outbreaks, which in many ways really supported the the Spanish effort. And you're seeing relentless combat. And the Spanish and their allies are essentially able to blockade the city. They cut off supplies and water. And the final assault on the city is, is pretty merciless with widespread destruction, massive loss of life. And essentially, you know, Tenochtitlan falls and kind of marks the end of the the Aztec Empire and an extremely significant victory for Cortes. It's incredibly just it's this one of the most sad things I think we've read because we talked last week about this city and just how unbelievably beautiful it was. Even the Spanish are rolling and going, oh my goodness, this is paradise. And, um, you know, one of the things I think with the, the sad night is and just I think it's important to talk about because, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about, okay, Cortes is in the city meeting with Montezuma, there's an uprising, and then he's invading or he's he's besieged the city. He's got to get out of that city first. And that's the, that's even crazier about like they're sneaking off in the night and then someone goes, hey, there they are. And then the whole city erupts. And you just hear this story of the Spanish, again, trying to bring all this gold with them. And what we talked about last week about Tenochtitlan is this, it's this Venetian style city with canals and causeways yeah, and yeah. surrounded by water. So they're trying to escape. The Aztecs are cutting them off. They're trying to carry their gold. They have their slaves trying to carry gold. Most of it falls into the water. Men are drowning. And it's just a bloodbath for essentially no real purpose. Mm-hmm. And after they take the city, they're essentially taking all the nobles from the town being like, all right, we've got the city. Show us where the gold is. And in this really just sad, pathetic way, they, they look at them and go, you, you took all the gold. And you lost it. It's you dropped it all into the water. So either this is a very clever lie, or they're like, "What do you mean you've stolen everything from us and you still want more?" Or, like, yeah. it's just it breaks your heart because again, the Aztecs are not these wonderful people who are, you know are just the most pious people in the world. But yeah. again, their culture has been destroyed for oh my god, we need gold and we need power, and then they just go and lose all of most of it and don't yep. actually have this gold, and and now this obsession with gold will just continue and the same story is going to keep happening where they hear that the town over has even more gold so they destroy that town and then they realize there's no gold there and they got to move on to the next one until eventually they get a little bit of order into place but yeah it's just a, a sad sad ending to you know one of the great empires and just for what right it's for the for the promise of gold that may or may not have even existed. Yeah, it is a it is a very saddening end, and I think one of the things that stayed with me, and probably a little bit of, of a tangent related to our last episode, and I think it really just ties into what we're talking about today when it comes to this kind of clash of worlds and clash of civilizations. Is you know, a question we pondered was why did Montezuma just kind of fall in line with Cortez's efforts? Right. And I think that's something I thought about a little bit after our actual discussion. And I think he sees the writing on the wall. And I think, right. And that to me is probably one of the more sadder realizations historically, which is like he's come to the conclusion that regardless of whatever they do with Cortez at this point, there's going to be more men like him. They could be worse. And what's going to happen ultimately is that they're going to come and take everything from us and overpower us and have technology that we can't even begin to comprehend. So he falls in line. He does. And it's a, it's a chilling thought because he thinks that Cortez represents the Spanish. He thinks he's an envoy. He's 
some sort of representation. But essentially, he's a thug and a criminal, yep. <laughs> legalistically speaking, because we know the Spanish love the, le- the legality of things. He's defied orders. He's there purely for gold, glory, and uh, and God. And you know what I mean? Like, it's for what? What is what is the purpose of outside of just he wants to make a name for himself? He wants to take this. He wants to be in power. And Montezuma has no idea that this is not representative of, of what would have happened if he sent envoys to Spain and said, let's have a conversation about how we can you know, work together and we can trade and do all of these things because he's seen the worst of the worst. But he, what he probably doesn't realize either is the motivation of people now coming to that land. It's just Cortez 2.0 and people even worse than him, sometimes better, but mostly worse sure. who have that lust yeah, for yeah. gold and just they're going to keep that machine is going to keep moving forward until they can get a little bit of control over that land. And it's a lot of just rogue rogue armed entrepreneurs at this point yeah and i think you know to really just put a pin on like the actual you know fall of the empire i think it's probably worthwhile to say like the siege lasted several months right like this wasn't a one and done kind of the the aztecs put up a very very noble fight but eventually because of the strategy and approach that cortez used you know they ultimately were susceptible to the enormous loss of life through starvation and it ultimately led to the collapse of their civilization and then you know here's cortez now as someone who has essentially been earmarked in the history books for destroying one of the greatest empires the world's probably ever known yeah and he's even like he continues that you know he's destroyed the aztec empire but he wants more gold and there's a story of essentially montezuma's replacement they torture him and they say, where's the gold? And one of the things they do is they put the, uh, I think they have burning oil and they pour it on his feet as a way of torturing him. And there's this story where they pour the the oil on his, on his feet and he kind of just smiles and he's kind of gone into Mexican folklore as the Montezuma has a little bit of a negative reception because of him kind of giving into the Spanish where his replacement was kind of brought into the world where, you know, he, he already sees the, the writing on the wall is already you know, written in ink. And he's seen as this kind of last defiant person against the Spanish. And then, of course, there's a rumor that he's trying to kill Cortez and the conquistadors hang him on a tree somewhere. It's just this pathetic kind of waste of life. And you think, again, this person has some sort of pull, but Again, they're so worried about losing their power because this is this is not a world where nobility and kingship and bloodlines yep. are controlling things from a Spanish perspective. It's essentially, again, armed capitalists where it's just survival of the fittest, whoever's yep. the strongest, whoever has the most money That's it. is going to be powerful. And you see this throughout this entire period. A conquistador leaves the city that they've taken over to go hunt for some other gold or whatever it might be. And they come back and, the, and they find out that someone's deposed them and the place is in ruins and it's just mayhem. And they just can't seem to really get control. And that's essentially the story of the conquistadors is its obsession for gold and God and they get what they want it's a short-term gain and then they just they don't have the skill to hold on to these things because everybody's just at each other's throats and then they're stuck in court for 20 years because the spanish love to sue each other back then and yeah it's just a again it's a it's a waste it's kind of a word that keeps coming to mind for me yeah no and i think to your point about the spanish always being embroiled in legal battles um it's almost ironic that that's how cortez would spend his later years so if we kind of see what happens you know it's funny because like we talk about cortez we talk about the conquest and we kind of just stop (laughs) most people aren't really too concerned about what happens post-conquest and for some reason 
I don't know what it is with these like adventurer, explorer, age of discovery types, but it doesn't usually end very well with a lot of notoriety, more infamy and impoverished living than anything. I don't know, Paul, I don't like... (laughs) Are you seeing that as well? Oh, for sure. There's this, some story too about a, a pretty brutal conquistador who uh, was on a mission. His horse slips, falls on him, and then a boulder comes and lands on his head and crushes him. And you're just like, well, Damn. that's just wow. what happens, okay. right? So it's yeah, I, yeah. from whatever everything that I've seen, it's either these guys die in some sort of obscurity, caught up in legal battles, they've lost a lot of their money, or they die in search of whatever next thing that's coming, right? These guys have this mentality of, I need the next big thing. They're almost kind of like, almost kind of like an addiction, right? Of you got to have the next 100%. thing. You can't just sit back and be happy with what you got. And a lot of them, you know, die hacking their way through the jungle. They die of disease. They die running into hostile native troops. And yeah, it's, it's not, it's, it's weird how I, you know, I came into this too, with you kind of have this, like the conquistadors almost have this glamorous view to them of these men in this beautiful armor showing up and commanding all this control and being a really organized force like that's kind of the thought that i had in my head which has completely been flipped on its head this is again they're not even 100%. soldiers which i thought was yeah. even crazy these are just guys showing up some of them may have been soldiers but this sure. is not like the yeah. spanish army is is going in there no. and they're very well trained no. or anything yeah. it's the yeah. complete opposite yeah. it's just like a ragtag group of guys it is yeah <laughs> and like to your point i think you kind of nailed it like you pretty much summarized you know the last chapter of his life so like post-conquest after the fall of the empire he's named governor and captain general of new spain he runs his administration you know pretty seamlessly he restructures the land under spanish control but man his appetites are not satiated he embarks on further expeditions to expand spanish rule so he he has expeditions to honduras or uh, the baja region and these ventures you know a little bit of for like foreshadowing here to your point paul these ventures are more or less less successful than what he imagines they're going to be and they drain much of his wealth and then in New Spain, he is continually challenged. He faces numerous legal battles, both in the New World and Spain. His relationship with the crown is complex, to say the least. You know, while he's recognized for his achievements, he's also viewed with great suspicion due to his growing power and autonomy in the New World. You know, they must realize like how he got there, how he gained power, and you know, now they're probably stuck in a very tough situation about what to do with him. Yeah, and there's a lot of rumors going around about him. I don't know. Did you read anything about his wife and what happened to her? I didn't know. Okay. So he goes to Cuba originally with Velasquez and Velasquez forces him to marry, um, I believe, a family member of Velasquez. They're married for about a year. And then Cortez goes on his his mission, does what he needs to do. He takes, you know, teach line. He's living there, has all this. There's rumors that he's got many, many women living in his palace. And <laughs> his wife is at this point where she's like, he hasn't called for me yet. Like, you'd think he'd send a ship or something to bring me now that the war's over. And that never happens. So her and her sister go, all right. We're going to pick up and we're going to go to Tenochtitlan. We're going to find Cortez. And she shows up. And then the way it's kind of reported is he kind of gives her a look of like, oh, hi, I forgot (laughs) you. I forgot about you. And um, at some point, they're overheard having an argument. They go to bed and then Cortez wakes up and goes, oh, my goodness, something terrible has happened. My wife has passed away, you know, in the night. And the rumors immediately start that he strangled her or, you know, she, you know, she, she walked out of an open window and, or fell out of an open window, you know, something like that, very Vladimir Putin of him, right? So we don't know for sure. It's obviously rumor, but again, this man is not a trustworthy man. So the years of legal battles and everybody kind of looking at him out of the corner of their eyes saying, I'm not really going to trust everything you have to say because you may have murdered your wife. Yeah. 
it, it, it all kind of comes together and, and sets, I think, a narrative for Cortez. And I think it just goes again to kind of speak of his legacy, right? It, it, like he's the guy shrouded in these kind of dubious, amoral decisions that he often makes for, you know, this, that kind of seems like convenient rather than any real strategy. Like, I don't want my wife here, so I'm just going to get rid of her. Exactly. Like yeah. She's just getting in the just, way. You just put her on a ship and send her back. <laughs> but I know. You're, like, you're, you're the lord of this area with a lot of money. <laughs> but you had to murder her because I think too he's at this point where he's he's been very very violent and yeah. he's been in this supreme leader um, sort of role where the king of Spain's you know across the ocean any word that he gets of what's going on is going to be six months later and by the time orders Easily. come back like what is he gonna what's he gonna do at that point right so he's I'm sure there's a big big ego that that he's dealing with. And I think that ego gets quite deflated in his later years. So he actually ends up returning to Spain in the in the in the 1540s. And you know, we assume he's hoping to regain some favor, secure some of his titles and privileges. But again, um, to your point, Paul, the the Spanish love legal disputes at this time, and he struggles to claim you know any real recognition or rewards that he believed he were he was due due to his conquest. You know, he's somewhat successful. The you know the 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 monarch gives him a little bit of money, but he never really regains you know the influence or status that he once held or he imagined he was going to hold on his return and he spends you know his final years again in relative obscurity pretty a lot of disappointment you know he dies in 1547 uh in a city near seville his death's not really marked by any significant fanfare he's buried without ceremony which you know is in stark contrast to the impact that he had on the world really it is a very strange quiet end to someone who was able to reshape an entire part of the world I'm always shocked when you hear things like that because it just puts into perspective what historical figures really represent in today's day and age or throughout history. Columbus is another one, right? We look, we learned a lot about Columbus and, you know, he was definitely a celebrity when he came back for everything that he did. But at the same time, people looked at him a little bit like this guy's a little nuts. I'm oh, not yeah. sure I really want to work with this guy and we're not going to give him any more money. <laughs> but then years and years go by where people look at historical figures and say, hey, they actually did a lot of good because look at how rich Spain has become. That all really started with Cortez. And without Cortez, yeah. you know, who knows where we would have been. And from what we can see, you know, Cortez, I don't think we you can give him a, a good or a bad sort of stamp. I don't think you can blame him for everything that happened. I think there was probably going to be somebody else who's just as ruthless who was going to do the same thing. But at the same time, you know, he's he's on another level when it comes to I think just selfishness and personal ambition and kind of disregard for those around him. And I don't know if he necessarily needs to be that. Like again, he could have still accomplished a lot of these great things without that. And then on top of it, I think he's very, very lucky. I think he's the one historical figure that we've looked at where a lot of things go right for him. And obviously, I know it's one of those things. It's like, well, if things didn't go well for him, we probably wouldn't be talking about him. Sure, sure. But it's like on another level compared to a lot of the historical figures, like having Malinche and Aguilar having a three-way language triangle going on and you know, being able to escape Tenochtitlan with his life when right. most of his people are dying. Like it's, and then he's able to come back in and he's not arrested when Velasquez tries to 
to pull him back and he's able just to escape before Velasquez is able to hone him in. All these little things just kind of work out for him. And, you know, eventually it kind of, you know, the luck runs out. And I guess that kind of makes sense why the end of his life is the way it is. But I think there's there's a little bit more there than just, you know, ambition and, and drive. There's definitely some luck and a lot of brutality. Yeah, I think he is. I think his life is fascinating. And I think he's quite a complicated figure historically. And giving him like a good bad rating is definitely not, you know, an easy impossible. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Like in, in some way in my head, it's one of those things where there's two truths that are obvious but uncomfortable to kind of articulate one is that i think it would be tough not to argue that he is a very strategically minded leader he's adaptable he's a tactician he's shrewd he knows how to get things done right but he's ruthless he is absolutely ruthless and he is willing to kill and he has very little regard for the suffering of not just indigenous people but it seems like anyone really yeah at, at the height of, of his kind of impact that he's making and i think related to that you know you can see this kind of like boom bust thing that's happening with his life you know the this expansive nature in which he's able to gather power and prestige but then you know like all things it kind of devolves and i think that kind of just speaks to the nature of like political power and influence like eventually it's going to go away and i think he's kind of a reminder to me of the complexities and issues of of analyzing these historical figures because it takes a lot of mental gymnastics and analysis to walk away with any kind of meaningful you know takeaways yeah and i i was you were talking there i was just thinking of like what would machiavelli think of of cortez right we talked about machiavelli maybe about five six episodes ago and he talked about being ruthless and being bloody and and taking lives when you need to and he talked about how you have you can do it but you have to be very very strategic on when you do it and i don't see that with cortez i think it's violence for violence sake it's the easiest way out for him because he is so much more powerful where Machiavelli kind of says, Hey, you can, if you need to burn a town to the ground, do it. But, but, you know, really think about why you're doing it. And if it's, (laughs) and sometimes it, again, from a very Machiavellian view, it's the right decision. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But for Cortez, it's, it doesn't seem like there was ever a, a decision to look at you know, Montezuma and say, okay, well, how can we figure something out here? So this is a longer, longstanding partnership where we can slowly move our way into the city and take over politically and have more control versus, hey, let's steal everything that's not nailed down and get the heck out of here. It's like a robber coming in and just saying, let's steal everything and, and try to get out. Like, like I was saying to you offline, like it's like they were criminals without a getaway plan. They just kind of ran in and said, let's just steal all the gold and hope for the best, which yeah, I guess is 100%. kind of the story of the conquistadors. More or less. Yeah. But I think the last thing is we can't take away from the fact that the Span- new Spain becomes a massive, massive player on the world stage. And if we look at Mexico today, everybody speaks Spanish and they're very, exactly. very Catholic. So that influence over years continues to happen. So I think we can definitely say Cortez is the first to kind of set the seed of Catholicism and, and the Spanish language. And it propagates throughout, you know, the next few hundred years. But the way it kind of happens, I think is, yeah, it's not great, but the impact is is there a bigger impact on on the world today than than what Cortez has it there's very few people i think that are that are at that level is what i think i'm trying to get at 100% i think the impact he made is probably one of the largest largest impacts to how it shaped the world we live in today and i think it's also an example of how messy and complicated history can be yeah this is a there's never a black and white answer and i think this one no. you know rubber stamped that one and made it even uh, even more clear yep so 
anyways, yeah, this was, I think, been a great two episodes on, you know, an area of history where I, I really didn't know much about. And I think when we talked about this, I said, let's do the Aztecs. They sound interesting. And boy, were they ever. So 100%. I think, yeah. you know, it is a sad, sad ending. But, you know, I think I got a, a definitely a deeper respect for, for the Aztecs. And um, just I think it's a definitely an area we're going to come back to and maybe look at some of these other folks that are involved in this story at some point. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back with another one in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the History in Motion podcast. If you enjoyed our journey through time, please subscribe, rate us, and share the podcast with friends. Your support helps keep history alive. Until next time.